0: I want to look with you tonight at the parable that Jesus told in verse uh, 15 or verse 16 to verse 24. And you'll see it's part of an unfolding natural dialogue and conversation that's going on with Christ uh, and people in relation to feasts and in relation to who sits where. And we note the skill which Jesus has in using opportunities for the gospel, natural opportunities. We need to be good at that and to ask God's help to be like Christ in that respect, in the way in which he turns the conversation. There's this pious statement, blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God, and the Lord Jesus, obviously seeing the heart and mind of this man, goes behind those words, those pious and yet not perhaps very real or deep words, and he begins to talk about what it really means to eat bread in the kingdom of God. And so he's really talking here in this parable about a feast, about a meal, which people are not jostling to attend, in which people are not striving to come into the best seats. He's talking about a meal which People say they want to attend, and yet actually they're not attending. So we're going to look at the parable through this particular lens. What does it require in us to be present at that feast? What convictions must we have? If we don't have these, we won't be there. What convictions must we have in uh, so that we can come to this particular supper this feast and it may be that this is in essence the same parable as the one we find in Matthew 22 concerning a wedding feast Um, I don't think that's reading too much into it that this is more or less the same idea Jesus obviously repreaches sermons at times sometimes with one emphasis sometimes with another emphasis but what does it require of us Well, of course, the first thing is it requires of us, again, looking through the lens of this parable, a conviction of the wonderful nature of the feast, the wonderful presentation of such a feast. Uh, Blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God, says this person sitting at the table. And then the Lord Jesus goes on to talk about the feast. But if we just compare that With Matthew chapter 22, assuming that it's more or less the same feast in the mind of Christ, in the work of the kingdom, we will see in Matthew 22 and verse 4, when the servants are sent out from this feast, they're sent out to say, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and fatted cattle are killed, and all things are ready. And then in Proverbs chapter 9, I read you an Old Testament version of this very same invitation to the feast. It's an Old Testament version of the same feast. Wisdom has built her house. She's hewn out her seven pillars. She's slaughtered her meat. She's mixed her wine. She's furnished her table. The building is tremendous. The room is magnificent. And what's causing the table to groan under its weight is the most wonderful food and this wine it's rich it's varied it's a tremendous feast and the same thought the same same word from the kingdom of god is is found in isaiah chapter 55 Ho, oh, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, yea, come, buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk, without money and without price. Again, rich and varied provender. So we need to be convinced that this is a really wonderful feast. This is, if you're not convinced about it, you won't come to it, of course. And of course, we're not just to think in terms of material things here, material food. This is just an illustration, it's an allegory of the wonderful nature of the kingdom of God. These are things that would appeal to people. These are things that would appeal to anybody who's hungry, anybody who enjoys such food and such drink. What is laid on is just right for them. And when we begin to Look at that now through gospel eyes. We see the wonderful nature of what God has prepared for us, for sinners like us. What, a, what a, a tasty dish is justification by faith alone. To be made right in the sight of a holy God, not on account of your own works, but on account of the works of another, Jesus Christ. When you and I know we cannot... Uh, produce good works in the sight of a holy God. We cannot be holy enough and perfect enough for him. What a tasting dish is that? What a, what a wonderful meal, or what a wonderful course is set before us in the new birth. That you, the Spirit of God comes into your heart and you're born again of the Spirit. And what heady wine is this, that you, a child of wrath, can become a son of God? daughter of God that's sweet wine isn't it and what water what refreshing water from God to know that the Holy Spirit comes and takes up residence in your heart and that you're sealed with the Spirit and to know your sins are forgiven and to know that God is your loving Heavenly Father no longer a distant God who never seems to take an interest in you but in fact a God who's now reconciled to you. He's known about you all, all along. But now, instead of not hearing your prayer because of your sin, he's now turned his face towards you. And it's not one, one of these three-course meals. It's one of these 20-course meals that we hear of in certain oriental situations. It's one of these These meals where there's dish after dish, savory after savory. And you'd be mad to reject such a feast. You'd be mad to turn away from it. So we need to be convinced of that. And then we need to be convinced, secondly, of the fact that we have to actually turn up for the meal. Now we need to understand a little bit of local. Custom here in the days of Jesus, the custom was for a formal meal like this, for a first invitation to go out and for people to accept it, and then just before the meal, the servant would go out and summon the guests saying it 's all ready now. you can come, and we maybe should see also just another element here in the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ that there are those who who uh, Have had that first invitation and have apparently accepted accepted it. A certain man gave a great supper and invited many. He said he served at supper time to say to those who were invited, Come. And surely we're to see in that the Jewish nation in the days of Jesus and in the days before him, the Jewish nation under the Old Testament economy. The invitation went out to them through the prophets, through the sacrificial systems. Of the Old Testament, for everything through everything that spoke of god 's grace and spoke of a Messiah to come who would save his people from their sins, and they to all intents and purposes accepted. they built the temple, they furnished the priesthood from the tribe of Levi uh, they brought their sacrifices regularly to the temple on the feast days they gave lip service at least to the prophets they as Jesus tells us they certainly decorated their tombs their gravestones and talked a lot about them and they considered themselves very privileged to be members of this nation but when it came to it as Jesus says they didn't come To the meal they all with one accord began to make excuses and that is really a picture to us in cameo in short of the incarnate ministry of Christ. We can think of this in the highest sense here is this servant who's come almighty God himself has come the son of man to be the servant of all and he's come now to issue the personal invitation to all the people of Israel to Jerusalem to Galilee. To all the regions round about, and out he goes and says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But as we know, they be- began to make a lot of excuses, and they didn't want him, and they turned from it. They forsook him. Now we can think of that back there, but let's realize there's a present day application in this. It's important that you actually come to this meal. It's important that you don't just say, yes, it's wonderful to be born again. It's wonderful justification by faith. Martin Luther, fantastic. The Bible, wonderful. Protestant view of, of, of the atonement and all these things. And yes, it's wonderful. But you don't actually participate. You don't actually come. In other words, you don't actually personally exercise faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Which is indeed the way of coming. That's what it means to come to Christ. To believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Not just about him, but to believe on him. Paul, the Apostle Paul, says in his letter to the Romans that the great problem for Israel was this. They had a zeal for God. They were very concerned about God's righteousness in a general sense. In other words, they affirm that this was a wonderful feast. But he says they will not submit to the righteousness of God. In other words, they will not submit to the fact that this righteousness only comes by faith. That Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And what they did then By refusing to come, it's perfectly possible to do today. Okay, we are not, probably most of us or all of us are not of the Jewish nation, but the call has come to us. The invitation has come to us. It's come to us in the creation. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day has a message for us. It's about the goodness of God, the love of God. It's shown in the sun that Goes from the east to the west, warming the skies, warming the earth, bringing fruitful seasons. It's an invitation. We've had the invitation in our consciences. The goodness of God leads you to repentance. All that God has showered upon you in loving kindness. It's like a great invitation. But what does it require? It requires faith in Jesus Christ. It requires you to actually come to the meal, to this spiritual meal. What else? Well, thirdly, it requires you to be convinced of the folly of just making excuses. Why? Because really there's no excuse that can be made for not coming to Jesus Christ. There's absolutely no excuse. In this Parable: The excuses are feeble and insulting. Especially considering that they had, in terms of the custom of the day, they would have first accepted the invitation. But now to give backward, on the basis I bought a piece of ground, I must go and see it. Well, he could have seen it another time. I bought five yoke of oxen, I'm going to test them. Well, he could have tested them any time. And of course, as often has been pointed out, I've married a wife and therefore I cannot come. There would surely be reason to say to the, to the Lord who's giving the supper, cannot my wife come too? They're feeble, they're pathetic, they're insults. And so is every reason offered up for not coming to Jesus Christ, for not coming to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we've heard many excuses in our days if we're believers. All kinds of excuses, like, I'm just about to move house. So what? I've got my exams coming up. Oh, is that more important than coming to Christ? I've got my own thoughts. Well, that's why you need to come to Christ. Or I've seen terrible suffering inflicted. Well, isn't that just exactly what the Word of God explains and shows is the great reason we need to be saved? And we can go on like this. Every excuse is pathetic. And I don't want to insult you tonight, but I say to you, if you are making an excuse for not coming to Christ, it's pathetic. Almighty God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit is inviting you to come to come and enjoy the feast come to the Lord Jesus Christ and that really leads us to the next conviction that you really ought to have if you are going to attend it's this that you must be convinced that God really wants you to come I do not know how anybody could read this parable and end up A hyper Calvinist. I do not know how. I do not know how anybody could read this parable of Jesus and end up thinking that somehow God doesn't want to save everybody. He sends out his servant to say to those who are invited, Come, for all things are now ready. They make excuses. And so the servant comes back and reports these things to his master. What does the master do? Do he say, oh, well, I never really wanted them anyway? No, he's angry. But he doesn't leave it at that. He says, go out into the streets and lanes of the city. Bring in here the poor, the maimed, the lame, and the blind. And so the servant, perhaps thinking, this is a strange master, but I'll do as he says. The servant goes out and he command, He does as, he, as he's commanded But there are still places, vacant. There's still room. What does the master do now? Does he say, oh, well, I've done my bit? Not at all. He says to the servant, go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in that my house may be filled. You see, he's far more willing to save than men and women are to be saved. He's far more willing that you come than you are to come. Three times we have this going out and calling people to the feast. This generous, loving, willing to bless Master with the feast for his Son. He's so willing to bless. He's so willing to save. Now there has to be something here that's true of you if you're not yet Believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. Either you don't really believe in salvation. In other words, you doubt the word of God. You make God a liar when he says he's able to save you. He's able to justify you. He's able to make you righteous in his sight. Either that or you don't really believe you, you need to come by faith. You just, you're not accepting that great word of God. You're guilty of the same sin as the Jews of old, a sin that brought them to everlasting destruction. You refuse to humble yourself and come trusting in Christ alone. Or else, in some way, you think it's reasonable enough to make excuses to God, whatever your excuses are. Or else, you doubt the willingness of God to save you. These are terrible, terrible sins. And then let me tell you something else you should be convinced of. You should be convinced of what the servant has to say at supper time to those who are invited. Everything is ready. Come for all things are now ready. You say, what does that mean? Well, it's a subtle thing is this. When people are shown that God requires them to come to him to be saved. So many people say, well, okay, I'll think about it. And deep in their soul, they say something like this. Okay, I'm prepared to give this serious attention, but I want God just to do something, something for me. Some special kind of illumination of some verse in the Bible or some special experience or some emotion or something to happen which will convince me that this is the right thing for me. And you see what that is actually saying. It's saying this, I don't really believe it's hot and ready. I don't really believe there's food on the table. God must do something else. But the fact is there is food on the table. Because 2,000 years ago, the Son of God came into this world. The Lord Jesus Christ assumed human nature. And in the most humble and lowly and lovely way, he came into Bethlehem, was born of Mary. And he lived out that perfect, sinless life. He constructed, as it were, a life of righteousness As the Son of Man. And he took that holy life to the cross. And there on the cross he played a complete and perfect sacrifice. The Bible is all about it. Holy, harmless, undefiled. Presenting that holy righteousness to God as both a priest and a victim. Both a priest and a sacrifice. Through the Spirit offering himself without spot to God. God the Father accepted the sacrifice Raised him from the dead. Declared this is my beloved son. In whom I am well pleased. In other words it's ready. The feast is ready. God doesn't need to do anything else. It's all ready. There's nothing else to be done. The food is on the table. The table is laid. The food is piping hot I say. It's just right for you. And so it is indeed really just another excuse, a subtle, pious excuse to say, well, I must have something else happen in my experience. You know, I, I, I put God on the spot to do that for me. No, you can't do that. Because God has said, come, for all things are now ready. And then we come this thought. You need to be convinced that indeed all you need to do is come. Now, it is a humbling thing, isn't it, that the Jews great people, the Jewish nation, with all their scholarship and ability and resolution, and they were a great people in the days of Jesus uh, fighting people a people of coherence and uh, a people who stuck together and maintained their identity in the most wonderful way. Even though they had terrible sins, they were very proud and arrogant and all that. But they haven't come by and large. Still, yes, in ones and twos and so on they come, but they haven't come. And when you think of the great ones of the Gentile world, the intellectuals, the media giants, the celebrities, the politicians, a few have come to Christ, but by and large they haven't come. Well, who has come to Christ, generally speaking, down the years? Well, it's been at, the be- at best the very ordinary, not the noble, not the rich, not the wealthy. But as Jesus here explains in the parable, the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind. We were hearing last night from a converted drug dealer, a converted pusher, and a converted criminal. And I'm not saying that that's the only people who come to Christ, but there they are among them. And what you need to have is a conviction that you must come in exactly the same way as them, as a sinner to Jesus. And that's difficult. It's humbling. It's humbling to be saved in just that way. And like the Duchess of Bedford, when she was invited by Selina, Countess of Huntingdon, in the 18th century to come and hear George Whitfield preach the gospel, she replied in her letter, it's humbling, it's degrading to be tr- spoken to as though you're exactly the same kind of sinner as the lower class. But she did come. She accepted she accepted the Spirit of God was at work. But you need to have that conviction. That is, It's exactly the same way for you as for everybody else. God has no favourites. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And then finally, here's another conviction you need to have, which is if you do not come to Christ, if you do not... Obey this wonderful, loving, generous invitation. You will be punished. You will be punished. Don't lose that note. Don't lose that note in the parable. It's there in verse 21. The servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house, being angry... Because it is a slight upon him. It is a slight upon his son. It's greatly to the dishonor of his glory. It's also breaking faith with him. And so he's angry. And then at the end of the parable, let's not, let's not leave this parable without giving attention to every part of it. At the end of this parable, Jesus doesn't just say, compel them to come in that my house may be filled. There's another line here. He says, for I say to you that none of those men who were invited shall taste my supper. In other words, it's a terrible sin to reject this wonderful invitation. It's even more of a sin because the invitation is even more undeserved and even more wonderful than you could ever think, which makes the sin even greater. It isn't that God is somehow put out in terms of what his great purpose is. It isn't as though he cannot furnish his table with guests. He will do so. They shall come from the east and the west, the north and the south, God says. It isn't that somehow you are getting one over God. You cannot do that. He will fill his house, but he is deeply and greatly disturbed and cross with your refusal to come. And he will show it at the last when he meets you at the judgment seat and says, what did you do with my invitation that came to you in Zion Church or wherever it was on that Sunday? What did you do with it? What excuse did you make? What reason did you have for not coming? What was it that you were not convinced of? Were you not convinced of the sincerity of my invitation? Were you not convinced of the genuine desire I had for you to be saved? Were you not convinced of the wonderful work that my son Jesus Christ did for you? Did for sinners at the cross? Were you not convinced... Of the absolute folly of making excuses? Were you not convinced that Jesus has done everything necessary for you to be saved? Why have you not responded? And you have nothing to say. You will hang your head in shame. And you'll go into outer darkness. Into a place of weeping and gnashing with teeth. Teeth. So dear friends, are you all there tonight? Are you all feeding on the living bread? Drinking at the fountainheads? Are you all enjoying the tasty delights of being at the same kingdom feast as the patriarchs, as the prophets, as the apostles, as the martyrs, as all believers down the ages? Are you, are you enjoying the heady wine? The free wine, the free bread, the free milk, the free flowing with milk and honey of the kingdom of God come without money, come without price, it says. Because it's God's perfect free provision for you. Is that what you're enjoying? Praise God if you are. But if you're not, come without delay. Come to Jesus Christ. Come to the feast. Come for all things. are now ready.